0: My guest today is Hal Varian, the Chief Economist at Google and a professor at the University of California, Berkeley in economics, business, and information management. I want to begin with a story about my grandfather. He spent years trying to remember who wrote the poem with the line, yet the strong man must go. And it really caused him a great deal of frustration that he couldn't remember who said that and what uh, poem it was from. And one night at dinner, he alarmed his guests by jumping up screaming, Robert Browning, He had remembered the poet and the poem. Uh, My father, on the other hand, unlike my grandfather, doesn't have to cope with years of frustration like that. If he wants to know who wrote Yet the Strong Man Must Go, or if you or I want to know, uh, you can just Google it, and in 0.29 seconds, less than a third of a second, the answer comes forth. That is just one of the many ways that Google has made our lives better. Yet there are people who see Google as threatening. Uh, I just saw them, uh, Google referred to uh, recently as a cultural behemoth. Why are people worried about Google? And should they be?
1: Well, I think it's inevitable that in uh, our society, when uh, one entity becomes large and powerful, it's going to attract additional scrutiny. That's uh, the nature of the game. And that's going to happen by the press, by the population at large, by the, by the uh, legal system, for that matter. And so, in many ways, that's a healthy phenomenon. Uh I think from Google's viewpoint, the important thing is to make sure that uh, uh, FUD is not uh, too widely spread, and we want to be able to respond to some of these uh, observations and criticisms. And in the last several years, we've invested quite uh, substantially in uh, building up our public relations, press communication group, and so on.
0: Yeah, we are... We're taping this interview on July 22, 2008, and I am on site here at Google, so you may hear some background noise uh, from the offices near us and around us. Uh, In the latest issue of The Atlantic, uh, Nicholas Carr has an interesting article. The title is misleading, although it has Google in it. The title is, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Uh, What the article is really about is not so much Google, although it's mentioned in passing, But the role of technology in uh, shaping the way we think in our brains, um, what do you think about that? Do you think that human beings, our productivity and our um, thought processes are affected by the short attention span that the Internet seems to be producing?
1: Well, I'm not sure that the Internet is necessarily producing a short attention span. The Internet is boosting our capabilities in many ways, as your opening anecdote illustrates. The debate about the impact of technology on thought processes goes back to the Greeks who complained that uh, that uh, writing was uh, making the younger generation stupid. <laughs> and uh, in my uh, time, I've heard the same charge leveled at calculators yeah. and other insidious devices like that. But the truth of the matter is that you can do so much more with these extra capabilities, get rid of the mundane tasks, and really focus on the important things. So in my view, when you can use Google, or for that matter, use a calculator, uh, it frees your mind to really pursue the creative thought processes as opposed to the routine or mundane processes.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who's worried about... Using a GPS system because she might lose the ability to read a map, and I ask her if she worries about knowing how to shoe a horse. One of the many skills that have been lost as technology as it has advanced. Um, so I, I'm, I'm de- definitely sympathetic to, to your perspective. Uh, in the uh, the car article, he refers to his own personal loss of attention span. He says he finds it hard to read. Long books. I do find in my own, and articles, I do find in my own case that I'm easily distracted by my email and other things. Uh, Do you think there's any counter to those benefits you talked about?
1: Well, the worst uh, factor that destroyed my attention span was being a university dean.
0: Oh, the, uh, more than your attention span, I suspect.
1: I was commiserating with another uh, colleague who said when he went back to uh, teaching, he would work on something for twenty minutes and then say, "Well, now what?" Yeah. Because when you're dealing with management, you've got an interrupt-driven life, and your time is divided up into twenty-minute chunks. If you're lucky, in many cases, it's more like ten-minute chunks. And when I wrote the New York Times columns, I had a similar experience. I had a eight hundred and fifty-word limit. So uh, whatever I wanted to say had to fit in 850 words. Well, as Robert Frost once said, uh, free verse is like uh, playing tennis with a net down. And uh, in some sense, an uh, article with no page limit is like playing tennis with a net down. I, I think that having that constraint of the 850-word column did a lot to improve my communication and writing style.
0: Yeah, I but it has made it more difficult to write uh, long pieces, should try an NPR commentary you get about 475 has the same it focuses the mind wonderfully like a hanging
1: so as I uh, like to put it in in Washington nobody pays attention to anything that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker (laughs) and in uh, business nobody pays attention to anything that doesn't fit on a one-page memo and in academia nobody pays attention to anything that doesn't fit on a 40-page document with footnotes and appendices
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, so so true um what do you think is the future of, um, if you have any thoughts you can share, maybe you can't share them on the future of, of searching. Um, we've become incredibly spoiled, as that opening story uh, is an example of, uh, and I don't think people really appreciate, most people don't any more than they appreciate, I guess but any more than they appreciate most of the modern, marvels of modern life, wh- what something like Google actually does. Um, I think most people think that the cool thing about Google is it searches a lot of sites. That, that is not the cool thing about Google. The cool thing about Google is that it knows, and of course that's not really the right verb. We don't have a verb for, for what it does. It produces, yields um, a, pa- a set of pages we're likely to want to read. And um, that's an extraordinary achievement um, of the human mind combined with technology. Is that going to change? Um, is, it going to get, is it going to get better, uh, or is it going to get different?
1: Well, you know, our uh, colleague Herb Simon, who started out life as an economist and then moved into uh, computer science, had a wonderful quote. He said, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Yeah. And uh, the problem in today's world is we have this wealth of information, so we're always looking for ways to economize on attention. Uh, if you look at Google, uh, in, the te- in the language of uh, information retrieval, they describe precision and recall. And precision says, of the documents retrieved, how many are relevant? And recall says, of how many relevant documents there are, how many have been retrieved? So there are two measures of performance. Mm-hmm. And now everything is about precision. Recall is... is. Uh, pretty much irrelevant because you can always retrieve hundreds, if not thousands, or ten thousands of documents on a given topic. The challenge is to make sure that the documents you do retrieve are the most relevant to the query at hand. Or right, you many. don't want all of them. You don't want all of them. And one many. of the one of the things that's interesting from the viewpoint of a kind of coevolution of the system is over time, users have become much more skilled at entering queries. Correct. So they are enter queries which are more focused, which are longer, which are more qualified. And so, of course, that gives Google or any other search engine a much better chance of pulling out the relevant documents. And uh, we see this evolution uh, even in the
0: last few years. Yeah, no, that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I, I,
1: it's an art, the art of searching. And to go back to what we we're talking about earlier with the machine aided cognition, uh, there's nothing wrong with doing a math problem on a calculator. The important thing is to know which numbers to type in.
0: Yeah, and, and the same
1: thing with using Google. Right. Uh, using Google as an aid to memory or information retrieval is fine. What you have to do is to develop the skill as a searcher to be
0: able to find the documents that are really meet your needs. But is the technology itself going to get smarter, um, or is it just the user? The users are getting smarter, as you point out. Uh, will the technology get smarter? So what people
1: don't really understand fully is that technology is ultimately based on statistical relationships. And, in fact, if you take the Google search algorithm in English and apply it to another language, it will work remarkably well. Mm -hmm. So there are these language or meaning-independent parts that are primarily driven by statistical relationships of one form or another. And uh, as we get more data, as we get more experience, those will get better. Uh, But I think a big part of it is going to be the interaction with the user in terms of the user getting more Mm -hmm. skilled in retrieving queries.
0: Sure. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how the next generation of, uh, the current generation of young kids, how their search skills and research, it's really about, as you say, it's about information retrieval, it's about research. Research used to be sitting in a musty library pouring over a document that was falling apart, and then it became pouring over this horrible microfilm that hurts your eyes, and now it's sitting at a screen that gets better and better, and uh, it's a glorious thing. I think the next generation will do it a little differently than, than mine. Uh, right. I
1: think about, think about the car in 1910, mm-hmm. the automobile. Well, over time, the automobile's gotten better, but drivers have gotten better too. Yeah. Uh, so you've seen this uh, mutual evolution of the car characteristics of the machinery, the characteristics of the infrastructure, the characteristics of the driver, and I think we'll all evolve in that direction. Uh, One of the very prominent things that's going on now is mobility of search. So if you look at the iPhone, which is really a breakthrough device, the uh, amount of searches that go on in the iPhone is really quite phenomenal. And in a few years, as we see a proliferation of mobile devices, we're going to see these uh, searches carrying over into every aspect of our life.
0: Well, it's you know, the car is a nice example because not only did we become better drivers, but what we expected of our cars and what we wanted to do with our cars and do in our cars changed dramatically over that, what over do, that we ever do?
1: What do we ever do with
0: our cup holders? I was, I that know. was my exact thought. I, I just <laughs> saw, first time I've seen it, it, it must have been in existence for a while, A heated and cooling cup holder, so it keeps your coffee hot and your cold drink cold in your car. Uh, And soon you're right. We'll say, how can we live without, how can we just have those plain room temp cup holders? Um,
1: I bought a new car. It has uh, one of those radio keys, so you don't have to take the key out of your pocket. You just press the push button to start. Yeah, yeah. Well that seems like a little thing but I have to say I love that functionality cuz I don't have to get to the car and fumble around in my pocket and drop what I've got in one hand just walk right in and it and it gives you this nice emotional response too cuz when I come up to it at night it blinks hello at
0: me. Yeah. Well and you know the the remote door opener again which is a trivial thing but it's um once you got it it's so pleasant it's very uh difficult to do without it. But one of the other things that might change besides what we want to do with uh, uh, searching. I mean, I think the iPhone's a good example. Is, uh, the hardware is gonna change and the internet itself is gonna change. So the iPhone's an interesting example because I think probably people spend a lot of time getting directions on it and finding out where a restaurant is, things that we don't think of as research when we think of the academic applications of the internet, but of course it plays a remarkable role now in convenience. But in both the convenience and the research side, presumably the, the Internet is going to change. Uh, what do you think, where do you think it's headed?
1: Well, I think one of the nice facts about the uh, Internet is it makes information more democratic. That things you could only get if you subscribed to a working paper list or if you went to an academic library or if you uh, knew who to ask, now are available to anybody in the world. So that I think that this uh, democratization of data is one of the really uh, uh, important aspects of our time, and it's an important aspect of what Google's doing. Do
0: think it'll change um, politics? They say it politics, has. Yeah, that's, a, a, that's the wrong word. Policy. Do you think it'll change policy? It obviously has changed politics. Do you think it'll change some of the outcomes of how the world uh, gets molded by political processes?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the nice things about Google or other search engines is it allows for pretty rapid fact-checking, and if somebody's up there spouting a bunch of uh, nonsense, you can check into it. And if everybody's sitting there with their mobile device uh, verifying what the candidate is saying, I think it's going to bring a little more accuracy into uh, political activity.
0: Yeah, although the best lies of politicians aren't factual ones. Um, So... It's a fair point. <laughs> do, do you think, because I think the, um, one of the most important aspects of the web is the spreading of education, not just facts. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual spreading of knowledge, I like to think that Econ Talk's part of that. Um, I don't think there's a better time in life to be an, econ- an aspiring economist. Without going to graduate school, I've, I've made the claim before, I'll let you react to it, that um, if you want to understand economics today, you can read a bunch of blogs, listen to a few podcasts, and you will have a flavor of economic intuition you could only get in the past by sitting in the coffee room at a graduate school lounge. Am I being overly um, optimistic there?
1: No, you are not. I, I completely agree with what you say, and the interesting thing is, it's true of every subject. I and assume so. we mostly look at economics, right. but I've looked at statistics blogs and at and at uh, political science blogs, and it's uh, really remarkable how you can dip your toe into the intellectual activity of these uh, of these areas. So it's a wonderful thing. Usually at no charge.
0: Usually, almost inevitably at no yeah. charge. Right. But one would think that that might affect not just the leisure hours of of our of people, but also how they think, and then perhaps what they vote for, and etc.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I'm not a uh, I'm not an avid reader of some of the more partisan blogs, but of course I look in on them every now and then, and you'll see this uh, this. Uh, solipsism where people were talking only to their own group yep. and, and uh, this of course is a, is a negative aspect the nice thing is that I think given the freedom of entry in this area uh, you've got uh, the possibility of challenge, debate counter challenge So, so take the ongoing discussions let's say about global warming which is really a right. huge problem of our Time and uh, this debate that we see about what is the cost, what are the impacts, how are things developing, what's the magnitude? In you know, the magnitude, this is this is incredibly healthy for society. I mean, it's frustrating in some ways for the participants who've who are uh, sure that they're right, they're On sure either that they're side. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's uh, overall one of the one of the
0: great. Uh,
1: developments of our time, that you can have that kind of free and open debate.
0: I think that's an interesting point. The I think there is a lot of concern out there that uh, that news is becoming uh, partisan. We see that on cable. We see it on the web, the web most dramatically. Uh, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Uh, it's, um, it's what people want to a large extent. They want to confirm their own biases. Uh, they're not all... Um, you know, searching for truth with a a lantern. They want to enjoy a, a rant by a fellow thinker, which is, I don't know, cathartic perhaps.
1: Well, one of my political science friends once told me that the best predictor of your political views are your neighbor's political views. So the people that you associate and talk with will have similar reinforcing political attitudes. And, uh, Of course, I only have a few neighbors, and so then you've got a little circle of self-reinforcing points of view, and now I've got the world as a neighbor. So when you go to some of these blogs, you can experience a much larger variety of viewpoints and uh, I think, ultimately,
0: have a much better chance of reaching an intelligent view. Yeah, I agree. Let's go back to an issue you raised in passing with the iPhone. There are different um, technologies now for accessing information. There are open and, think of them as open and closed. The computer is sort of open. You can access knowledge uh, using different software of your choice. The phone, generally, is closed. The person who makes the hardware is the person who makes the software. Is that a competition? Is that going to change... Uh, well, what you that's think?
1: A, I think that's a very important and profound question because if we look at the uh, different networks we see very different characteristics depending on this open or closed aspect. So look at cable TV, closed network, the content you see is chosen by the provider, by the network provider. You look at the mobile networks, you look at landline telephone networks, they're all proprietary. proprietary. If you look at uh, other communication channels, books and newspapers, there's much more competition. As we heard, the freedom of the press belongs to someone who owns one. But when you go to the Internet, everybody owns a printing press. Everybody has access to this open network. And so the openness of the Internet uh, is its huge strength, and it's really quite unusual. I mean, we don't see that as much uh, for other sorts of networks. Uh, I like to refer to the Internet as a lab experiment that got loose. It really is. Because it really was not designed uh, to be a popular communications mechanism. It was designed to be a communication mechanism among this elite scientific community. And I will tell you, even the people in that community who were there at the beginning are still surprised by the dramatic social impact of the Internet. So here we had this burning need to have an open network for communication, and we never knew it until the Internet came
0: along. Yeah, and no, I think it's a um, a really uh, universal phenomenon that the tools that people develop end up having uses they don't anticipate, right? I think the the first Xerox machine was thought to have no market because, I mean, how many copies would people want to make of stuff? Uh, At the time, they assumed it was going to replace carbon paper, which was a thing that most of our listeners have no idea what it is. (laughs) It's a bizarre, very uh, physically unpleasant substance that sat on the back of, of regular paper to make a, quote, carbon copy that people use to make it easier to keep track of correspondence, etc. And, and you can really
1: get into Arcania because that little cc in your email, that means carbon copy. Yeah, well,
0: that's a nice example. Amazing! Yeah, what yeah, an anachronism! <laughs> yeah, that, that became a shorthand that wasn't uh, intended either. And so I suspect uh, there are probably very few things that are ended up being used either just as they were intended or even the way they were intended. Well, um, I have a wonderful
1: uh, picture of one of the uses of telephone, The uh, anticip- uh, one of the business models surrounding the advent of the telephone was to pipe music into your house. Brilliant. And uh, yes, I remember this. There's a nice picture of an orchestra there playing, and it was uh, three cents a minute for, I uh, maybe it was three cents an hour for uh, pop music and five cents for grand opera. And, and the idea would be that you would listen to it over your phone? You'd listen to it over your phone.
0: Wow. Uh, early... Uh Example of an iPod that's right limited that's right same function limited uh, choice very limited mobility I guess you had to stand next to the wall
1: <laughs> well they would have they would have a speaker on it but it would be, this was of course prior to radio so it was yeah. really radio is what ended up having that functionality and even radio is an interesting example because the initial killer app for radio was shipped to short communication that was what really counted. And the fact that, over, that other people could overhear your conversation was a nuisance. And it was a great leap to think that, gee, there might be, uh, that, that might not be a bug. It might be a feature. Yeah. So you could, in fact, broadcast, think of the word, broadcast the uh, same message
0: to millions of people. Right. So, yeah, that's and right. then the challenge is, how do you pay for it? Yeah, how do you, get, how do you make money off it? And they found a way. Actually, yeah, same us- thing with the Internet. <laughs> people usually do, yeah. I, know, we, uh, I interviewed Chris Anderson uh, recently, who's got a, a, fourth, a planned book called Free. And it is a remarkable thing how much, much of the Internet is free to users. Much of it's free to the providers, too. They don't get anything out of it. And I think the, um, the Google story is a phenomenal story because they found a way to, to make some money off of something that people, I think, thought was going to be free. And it is still free to the user. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful system that's evolved. Um, so we talk. So we're talking about the, going back to the the proprietary and non proprietary, open and closed idea. Uh, you closed by saying how wonderful it is that the internet is as open as it is, and that was something unintended and didn't um, wasn't planned. How do you think that's going to evolve? Do you think it's in terms of that competition, of implicit competition between closed and open systems? What role is the government going to play? What role should they play?
1: Well, I think that the genie is out of the bottle, so people have seen the benefits of having an open system, and there's more and more of a push towards that model. So, for example, in Europe, there's a big effort towards document exchange, open standards for document exchange. And uh, there are other places in the world where people recognize the uh, problems with proprietary standards and proprietary networks and are pushing towards more openness in those areas as well. Of course, as as we both know, as economists, uh, then you still have to worry about what the business model is that supports that open network. So I won't say it's uh, something that's going to uh, necessarily work everywhere. But I think it really has a a lot of possibilities in ways that we haven't yet envisioned. As you know, there's a movement towards open science where publication will mean something quite different in the future. Yeah, which is um,
0: probably a good thing.
1: Absolutely, I think so. I mean, of course, what we're doing here is
0: is a nice example as well. It's open communication. There was a, um, you know, that competition such a powerful force. You had a very interesting column in the uh, your earlier days at the New York Times on whether information technology matters. Yes. Uh, someone, Nicholas Carr again, actually, by, by chance, uh, who we mentioned earlier, wrote an article, I think, for the Harvard Business Review and then a book suggesting that IT didn't matter. And um, you wrote very wisely, I think, that it does not it doesn't. It doesn't. Can you, do you remember that piece?
1: I remember a bit of it. I, I think that one of the um, uh, points of the debate was this issue that some that information te- technology becomes somewhat generic, so you could have pretty much the same co- same IT here as uh, there. And I completely agree with uh, Nicholas on that point that we have gotten m- much more generic structures now than we had 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, one really important aspect of information technology is that systems that were only available to the largest and richest uh, companies are now available to a much, much, much broader uh, span of uh, organizations. So uh, only the Walmarts and Targets and Kmarts of the world could afford these intelligent cash registers that tracked inventories and re- produced reports at the end of the day and had scan codes and all this stuff uh, 15 years ago, but now the smallest mom-and-pop store can have the same technology, essentially. So we've seen this great uh, democratization of the, uh, of the technology. But coming back to the data side... Uh, I feel that even though a lot of the infrastructure is uh, reproducible easily across companies, uh, the expertise is not necessarily reproducible across companies. That's correct. And people who invest in hiring uh, data managers, information managers, statisticians, economists, other people who can make sense of those masses of data, I think they will have a competitive advantage in the future. It's a nice distinction. I said in a recent interview that what's the key to success, you want to have a scarce factor of production that's highly complementary to something that's ubiquitous and cheap.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you have a monopoly on left shoes and right shoes are free, you're in a pretty good position. So what's ubiquitous and cheap these days, it's data. And what is it that's the scarce factor that's complementary to data, it's the analysis, analytics. Yeah, thinking about it wisely. And so thinking about it, getting the data to tell a story, communicating that story effectively, and translating it into practice. So those are absolutely critical skills. And uh, I think uh, you know, the sexy career of the next decade is going to be statistician.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I used to teach in the business school at Washington University in St. Louis, and I would have undergraduates who would brag to me, that they majored in business because you don't have to write any papers. And I would explain to them that, well, I understand that appeal, but learning to write and communicate well is a remarkably important skill, and it's very scarce and very valuable.
1: We had a group of uh, recent MBA graduates come to management at uh, Google several years ago and saying, we'd really like to have a course on databases and statistics. Now, when I tell this to my colleagues at business schools, they immediately burst into laughter and say, you've got to be kidding, because the least, <laughs> those are the least popular courses right. in any <laughs> MBA <laughs> curriculum. Right. We offer a ton of those, and no, oh, one, no, takes no yeah. one takes them. No one takes them. Yet the students got here. When they got here, they realized that they had to wait around uh, and get some engineer to pull the data for them they'd never make their presentation schedule for next week. If they had to go around and dig through the books or look for how do you compute a confidence interval, they wouldn't be able to uh, produce the, uh, the required uh, material either. So uh, they were very, very uh, insistent on uh, providing a refresher course, and we did it for them.
0: Uh, although, I, in, in defense of the employees, of the MBAs, I, I suspect, and this is a general problem, and, and maybe we'll use this as a segue to talk about economic education. Um, The way that topics get taught in a business school are not always the most useful uh, ways, partly because they have to be general, but also I think because people teaching them tend to be, they like to think of themselves as high-minded and in an ivory tower, and and they're more likely, I think, to force the students to prove uh, how to, why t-statistic is related to to confidence interval and statistical significance rather than having them understand that greater or less than 2 is not really the only thing that matters, that they're subtler and more important. Intangible lessons. The way I think about it, and I comment on this generally, I, I think it's very hard to teach people things in universities, especially at the undergraduate level, that don't easily lend themselves to an exam's a lot of the lessons of life that are most valuable are not amenable to exams. Wisdom is not easily tested. And so as a result, we tend to test facts, we tend to test proofs, we have multiple choice questions, and we miss out, I think, on the subtler forms of of instruction, both in economics and certainly in statistics, where the temptation to require proofs and other things must be very strong. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I would I would agree with you. There's a gap, even in economics, between what's taught in the econometrics class and what you, need, you learn as a research assistant working on yeah. project. a project. So there's example. this apprenticeship model, which I think is not sufficiently appreciated in economic education or in undergraduate education or most other kinds of education, that it's important to learn the facts and be able to answer the questions and know the concepts, but then... There's also this uh, transition to actually applying them in an intelligent way. And I'll tell you for a fact that I took statistics as a graduate student. Econometrics was one of my fields. And I don't think I really learned it until I had to teach it. And then when I had to teach it, it made a lot more sense. I hope it made as much sense to me as to the students. Because I learned the manipulations... And I learned the calculations and I learned the arguments, but I have to say, I think it was when I was forced to uh, communicate this in a, in a way to a, someone who was just starting out, I really developed a much deeper feel for it. And I think, by the way, that's one of the uh, best things going for professors that they're required year after year after year to communicate what they know. Yeah. And making people communicate what you know helps you understand it better yourself.
0: No, I'm. I'm um, I've used this example before, but I, I was, I was, I was forced to read *The Use of Knowledge in Society* by Hayek. It's a 1945 AER article uh, in my first economics class at the University of Chicago. I read it and I thought oh, that was good. I liked it. Um, I realized 20 years later, 30 years later, I really didn't, 25 years later, I didn't really understand it. Uh, and when I asked students what it meant, and I realized they didn't understand it, and then I had to teach them what it meant, they also um, took a while because I had to figure it out. Uh, and it, there are a lot of concepts in economics but, that are like that that are deeper than they appear, comparative advantage being one of my favorites. But, but I think in statistics, this issue of, of apprenticeship is, is the right model. That certain things you learn from the seeing it done. Uh, that's important. Um, Let me ask you, talking about the usefulness of your graduate training, uh, you're the chief economist at Google. Uh, In the past, that meant you were the person who came to management with a large scale macroeconomic model to tell them what interest rates were going to be in two years or six months. I suspect that's not what you do much of here. Be curious to hear what you bring to Google as an economist. What have you found useful about your econometrics, economics, and econometrics training, if any, that you bring to bear? And why did they hire you?
1: Well, I came to Google six years ago. I had uh, been dean at Berkeley, and and uh, after your dean for uh, seven years ago, seven years or so, you get some uh, time off for good behavior. And uh, I took an unpaid leave from Berkeley and uh, came here to Google because I knew several of the people involved. And I asked Eric Schmidt what I should work on, and he said, why don't you take a look at this ad auction? I think it might make us a little money. Well, he was right. What is that? (laughs) The ad auction is how we sell ads on the side of the page. Mm -hmm. It's done by an auction. It's a very clever auction. It was in place by the time I arrived. But uh first thing I did is I took a look at it. I did the game theoretic modeling of that auction. Um, very simple techniques turned out to lend a lot of insight, and uh, i f- I did a uh a- an econometric analysis on top of that. And my claim is it uh, it's one of the great arguments for game theory because the data fit the model within four or five percent error. Uh, The model really does a very good job, I think, of explaining uh, what's going on there. And so I've continued over the years uh, working on the care and feeding of the Google ad auction. That's been one of the primary uh, responsibilities. So uh, once I finished working on that, uh, one day somebody came in and said, Oh, Google, it's all over. Our traffic is falling through the floor. Uh, We should start looking for other jobs. And I said, let's uh, look at the data. And they said, see, look, look how much uh, queries have dropped. And I said, why don't we plot that data in log terms, take the log of the data. And once you take the log and look at it, you can see that the percentage drop this summer was the same as the percentage drop last summer is the same as the percentage drop the summer before that. <laughs> so that very, very simple expedient of just looking at the log of the traffic rather than looking at the actual traffic gave you a great deal of insight and uh, uh this by the way, was a very, very smart person who uh who looked at the absolute numbers and got worried uh, I think what it uh what it illustrates is that some pretty simple things can really go. Uh, a long way in, uh, in generating insight, and that was a prime example. And after that, by the way, they were so impressed with my uh, brilliance in uh, time series forecasting, they became the chief forecaster.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> a title that you wouldn't want to bestow on your worst enemy, yeah, c- right. congratulations. <laughs> I'm, uh, well, well, we're out of time. My guest today has been Hal Varian, the chief economist at Google. Hal, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure.